This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. This weekend, Australians head to the polls. After a long, but at times hollow campaign, devoid of big picture and big policy. Have the major parties earned your vote? Or have one of the minor parties or the so-called teal independents made more of an impression on you? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisha about the Guardian view on the Australian federal election and the best hope for the challenges ahead. It's Friday, the 20th of May. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. On Thursday, The Guardian ran an election editorial, Lenore, and Scott Morrison's campaign was described as a mirage. Can you tell us what you meant by that? Sure. So this hasn't been the most sort of content-rich, inspirational election that I've ever covered, and I've been sort of covering them since about 1990. But at the end of the day, it comes down to a choice, as both leaders keep telling us that it does. And as you say, you know, we write editorials towards the end of the campaign talking about how we think that choice looks for our readers. And so I looked at it through the prism of what issues we think are the most important, so global heating and cost of living and the sort of policies that are essential for a fair and decent society. And The conclusion that I came to was that Scott Morrison's answers were often non-existent or inadequate. Anthony Albanese's answers weren't always inspirational. They weren't always fulsome. They didn't always fully address the problem. And that's, you know, for all the reasons we know about Labor not wanting to fall at the finish line like Bill Shorten did in 2019. But on most of the critical policies, Labor's answers were better and Scott Morrison's was sort of non-existent. So Scott Morrison's trying to paint this picture that we're through the pandemic, it's all good, he's now a kind of changed man, he's not a bulldozer anymore, and we can all just get back to living our aspirational lives. And I guess my conclusion was that's not true. The pandemic showed all these fissures in society for which we need answers, Mm. and when you weigh up the answers, Anthony Albanese's and Labor's answers are better, if not fully answering the problems, better than the coalitions. So can we just go through some of those important issues on global heating, Mike? What are the two parties offering? So the coalition's policy has not changed for a long time, nearly a decade since Tony Abbott set their target of no more than 28% cut in emissions by 2030. Uh, Labor's is much more ambitious, 43% on the same measure, which is not quite as ambitious as they set last time for reasons that Lenore's alluded to, that they were burnt by their failure at the last election, which itself is not, you know, commensurate with the levels of global heating that we're told we need to reach if we're to keep temperatures below 2 degrees, uh, more like 1.5 degrees. That target is still inadequate, but it's obviously closer than the coalition's target. And also Labor has proposed some measures that they think we can, can get there, by um, implementing the existing safeguards mechanism in a more useful way, more, you know, in a more efficient, effective way. In a way that does something. It, does, it actually <laughs> does, produces some results, yeah. 
and by upgrading our transmission, the electricity transmission system, so that renewables can be brought on stream more effect effectively. Those are not, you know, groundbreaking, hugely transformative measures, but they are at least coherent and credible steps on the way, I guess you could say. And, you know, if you think about what would happen if the coalition were re-elected with policies that actually do nothing to get to their goal, you know, technology, not taxes, is a slogan. It's not a policy. There are no policies. They would actually have subsidised new fossil fuel projects and new fossil fuel developments over three years. And we would be three years closer to that 2030 target. And the trajectory for Australia to get to its 2030 target would be even less plausible than it is now. Like on this policy issue, kind of above all others, we don't have three more years to waste. I guess we should point out that Labor has also, particularly in Queensland, um, said that it would support opening new coal True. mines, which is, um, you know, runs counter to a lot of the its uh, climate targets if they stack up environmentally, mm. in inverted commas, which I guess is their get-out-of-jail card because they um, can hope that they, or presume that they do not stack up environmentally, but nevertheless they're trying to walk both sides of the street in that respect and uh, argue for coal jobs, particularly in Queensland. And Lenore, you point out in the editorial that the COVID pandemic has really exposed their social services. What are the major parties offering on that front? Yeah, it's really weird that the pandemic has been sort of a bit absent in this campaign, even though it's been, mm. you know, the defining feature of our lives for the last three years. But when you think about the experience of the pandemic, you know, what we saw were hospitals are underfunded, public schools are underfunded, care workers who we all relied on completely, you know, in life and death situations have really lousy pay and are leaving the workforce just when we need them the most. Um, look what happened when we gave unemployed people a, an, an amount of money that you could actually live on. It exposed all these things that were already there but were really brought to the fore during the pandemic. So, and again, when you look at what the parties are promising, Labor's sort of a bit ahead on most of those things. So if you take aged care as an example, and I think it's a good example because 70 or 80 aged care residents are dying of the pandemic every week at the moment. We're not even talking about it. But the government implemented some of the recommendations of the Aged Care Royal Commission and they did put more money on the table for that. Anthony Albanese matched that and added like $2.5 billion on top. But most importantly, he has said that he would both support and fund the current wage claims by aged care workers. And it's really the appalling pay of those carers that sits at the heart of a lot of the problems in aged care. So across a lot of those policy areas, which I think have been discussed too little in this campaign, Labor is a bit ahead, not streets ahead in most cases, but a bit ahead in acknowledging that those problems exist. The one exception is on the rate of job seeker, which went up slightly after the sort of pandemic boost was taken away, but still is below the poverty line. And, you know, the, the, the knock-on effects of that for society are huge and the benefits of actually having that at a livable level were so evident in the pandemic, but that's something that neither party is willing to touch at the moment or even commit to doing something about in a first term of government. Mm. I think it's interesting that when you think back to the days of the extraordinary interventions by the government uh, to deal with the pandemic, economic interventions, new rules and restrictions, lockdowns in those days of, of very extreme and unusual measures, it felt like 
this must change politics. This must change how we do how we do politics going into the future. There's been so much, you know, government money thrown at the problem. Does that change how people view government intervention in the economy generally over time? Not really, it seems, from yeah. this campaign. I yeah. mean, again, admittedly, people haven't been talking about the, def- the debt and deficit disaster because they're... Because the, they, <laughs> they all have enormous they, deficits. They're all invested in that, yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, you know, there's been no there's been no sea change really in the way the parties have framed government intervention in people's lives, except perhaps on the fringes on the right where they have opportunistically taken opposition to vaccine mandates and run with that and we'll see how that plays out in the election Mm. you know it may be that they are the ones who've actually pulled the lessons out of the pandemic more effectively than the major parties yeah and that sort of goes to the point i was trying to make in the editorial that this is a slightly underwhelming campaign in that you know, it does seem like it's a time when we should be resetting and rethinking because there's these enormous challenges, mm. both left behind by the pandemic and, you know, the geopolitical situation is challenging. You know, the global economic situation is challenging. There's all these challenges and we've sort of gone a bit back to politics as usual but with Labor sort of doing promising a bit more than the coalition. So I agree with Mike. Yeah, and one of the major issues of the campaign is obviously cost of living. We've talked a lot about it but... And, and housing is part of that and people, we know the rental crisis we've reported on and extensively. Are either of the major parties really addressing that, Lenore? Nope. No, neither of them are. They each have housing policies that would do a little bit to uh, help first home buyers into the market and possibly do a lot to continue to put upward pressure on house prices. So what the net effect of that would be is sort of debatable. And then in the dying days of the campaign, Scott Morrison, you know, smashed down what he obviously thinks is a trump card in some of the outer suburban electorates by allowing people to uh, raid their super in order to get a house deposit. And, you know, I think there are so many questions about that policy. Would first home buyers have enough super for 40% of it to make a material difference? How is the government going to make sure that they put that money back in at the end of their working lives when they need their super? It does seem like part of the coalition's long-standing ideological attack on compulsory superannuation, which they've been chipping away at in all sorts of ways for years. You know, it's a consequential policy that hasn't been properly explained which also could have the impact of putting up house prices. Nobody's talking about the two things that might make a difference, which is housing supply and taxation arrangements that absolutely hugely incentivise wealthy people buying houses for wealth accumulation rather than housing being just a human need for people to have at an affordable cost. You could almost see these last two election campaigns entirely through the frame of Tim Wilson, yeah. the uh, <laughs> member for Goldstein, couldn't you? Because he ran the, effectively ran or was a big contributor to the campaign against Labor's franking credits policy in the, at the last election, which was so successful, negative campaigning and the super, the radio super for housing to get into the housing market is another one of his pet policies, which he has run extremely hard on over many years. And interestingly, in this election, he seems to be under threat from an independent in his own seat. So last time he came out on top, this time remains to be seen. We'll see. And the issue of integrity in politics and the Federal Anti-Corruption Commission hasn't gone away in the way maybe the government would hope it might have gone away in the campaign. Has it, Lenore? 
Uh, no, it hasn't. I mean, this is one of the big differences between the major parties. Scott Morrison is clinging to his completely inadequate model for an integrity commission, which most experts say would be worse than doing nothing at all. And quite shockingly to my mind in the campaign when he's been asked about pork barrelling and, you know, the blatant spreading of money across marginal seats that goes on, which the audit office says time and time and time again is bad and wrong. You know, the car parks one from last election, the sports rorts, you know, we all know the roll call. Scott Morrison's actually said in interviews in this campaign, there's nothing wrong with it, nothing wrong with it at all. Bureaucrats shouldn't be able to tell you where to spend money. Politicians should decide where to money, nothing to spend money, nothing to see here, no problem. I mean, it's just unfathomable to me that he would say that. Of course, politicians can say we want to have a fund to achieve this end, but the idea that that should not be administered in any kind of fair and reasonable way according to criteria and checkable by the public service is just wild to me, just completely wild. Labor, by contrast, has said that they would have an, an ICAC, an ICAC with teeth. Labor's, to be fair, Labor's going around the country spending a lot of money on, <laughs> on marginal seats as well. Like, they're both doing that. But, you know, the, the need for an ICAC is just, is a federal ICAC is unquestionable and the government is pretending like that isn't there. And, you know, as we've said lots of times on this podcast, not having any accountability at a federal level uh, is just eroding people's faith in democracy and people's faith in the system. Mm. So moving on now, you know, obviously the media has a huge role to play in elections. How do you think the media has performed on reporting on the, the major challenges facing Australia in this election? I think it's interesting. Our data team did a an exercise where they compared the issues that voters had said in an AE news survey were the most important things to them and then the issues that were asked about at press conferences or that were the subject of press releases by the leaders. And cost of living won out in both columns, you know, that was most important to people. But after that, voters nominated aged care and education and issues that were really well down the list of what the leaders have been speaking about. So then you think, well, whose fault is that? And it is in part the media's fault but I think it is also a function of the kinds of opportunities that the media has had to ask the questions. So, you know, it's the media's fault to the extent that I think some of the questioning on the campaign trail has been kind of performative and looking for some sort of gotcha headline or worse still, a sort of moment on television where the camera is trained on the reporter allegedly asking the hard-hitting question. But also... I think there wasn't a national press club debate this time. Scott Morrison didn't go to the press club for the first time in many years to, to be asked questions in that way. So I think the opportunities to ask questions have been limited in some ways in compared with previous campaigns. Mm. And I think the media ha should have pause for thought as well about, you know, whether they're always talking about the issues voters care about the most. I mean, one example is we've tried so hard to get the rental crisis onto the agenda in this election because it's it's extreme. It's absolutely extreme. The leaders only want to really talk about housing affordability and home ownership. They don't really want to talk about the rental crisis that much, even though a third of Australians rent their home and even though for so many of them there is no affordable accommodation. So responsibility for the gap between what voters want to 
uh, talk about and what the politicians are talking about is a bit of a shared responsibility. Mm. And even when they do talk about the broad policy areas, that's not, well, you know, even when the media do ask about those, it's not always in a constructive way. Like, for example, the interview where uh, Anthony Albanese was asked to repeat after Ray Hadley that it, there would oh. no be car, no carbon tax ever. I mean, come on, we're, surely we're beyond, we're beyond that. Put leaders under pressure on their climate policies yeah. by all mm. means, but not by going back to something that is not their policy, you know? Well, you could also say the six-point plan on the NDIS yeah. fell into the same category. I mean, I think there were times when Anthony Albanese stumbled in this campaign and it was legitimate and I would have put the early questioning on the unemployment rate in that category. But the NDIS question, sure, you know, he should know the six points, but more important, he knows what the policy is about and what it's going to do and what it means. And I don't think he was even given much of a chance to say that because, you know, the questioners were so intent upon making sure he got every one of the six points right. Yeah, I don't think that exchange would have been of much interest or comfort to people with disabilities or who care yeah, who for people with disabilities. Yeah. Who are having mm. their plans cut. And then similarly, uh, Scott Morrison's response in the first leaders' debate when he was asked about NDIS cuts and responded saying how blessed he was and it was perceived that that meant blessed not to mm. have children who were disabled. But that didn't help which, Ethan, uh, whose mum was asking exactly. the question. Yeah, mm. didn't didn't go to the policy question at all. We don't have a presidential system in Australia, so we don't vote for the Prime Minister, but we know people often base their choice on the leader. So how would you rate their leadership styles against the challenges that face the country right now? I think it's an interesting comparison. I think Scott Morrison is better at the political game of the campaign. He's better at staying on message. He's better at just delivering the talking point for the evening news. That The way that the campaigns are set up sort of suits his style of leadership and his style of campaigning. But if you look at their sort of records and you take a step back from the hothouse of the campaign, I think, you know, Anthony Albanese is not a stunning orator I don't think the electorate finds him wildly inspirational, but he is promising a consensus style of leadership, which, you know, I think is what the country needs. You know, we've watched Scott Morrison for four years now as Prime Minister, and so he's a more known quantity in leadership. And I think, you know, at times during that period, particularly during the pandemic, he did some things that were that were right, like he led at times quite well. But I really think the record shows that he way too often elevates political expediency over decent policy outcomes. You know, he puts his political interests first. And, I mean, the two examples that I gave in the editorial are the whole reckoning over the way women are treated in the Parliament House work culture and also the way that the Coalition has really tried to weaponise transgender children during this campaign. I think in both of those instances, political expediency won out over good outcomes. Morrison's talent, if you can call it that, was most incredibly on display in that incident just on Wednesday night when he ran over a small child. By accident, we have to yeah, say. He accident. didn't mean no, to. No, he tripped he and fell on the to, kid. He was kind of clumsy and it didn't look you were great. Uh, <laughs> not that it was ever going to be something that turns the whole campaign, but he managed to turn even that into a sort of folksy positive moment for him by the, the way the, he yeah, the reacted. Did, and they did, put the kid on TV and talked to his mum and, you know, it was all kind of charming. I mean, it's not 
useful, really, except to him. You know, it's not a talent that, that gets us anywhere, really, but it is it is a really effective political Mind you, it was campaign. better than the response of Stuart Robert, his minister, who said on radio yeah. he thought there was fault on both sides. There was fault on both sides. Yeah, the tiny kid. <laughs> I think Morrison has also seemed quite rattled and desperate at times during this campaign. Maybe desperate's putting it a little bit too far, but unnerved, and that's shown in some not really very attractive personal attacks, particularly on implying, in fact, he said it again on on Thursday morning about Anthony Albanese, that he can't hack it. And he said it for the first time when he was recovering from COVID. Mm. And that kind of personalising attack is probably alienating more people than Morrison's campaign is attractive. So how have the minor parties and independents influenced this campaign? It's interesting how they're going. I think because there is this sort of quite widespread disillusionment with the major parties, the minor parties and independents could be quite consequential to the result. The Greens have been campaigning quite strongly on ending new coal and gas projects and adding dental to Medicare and a whole lot of, you know, quite thought through policies. And they have some hopes for a lower house seat in Queensland, in Brisbane, and also obviously in the Senate. There's been a lot of interest and a lot of people have been inspired by the voices of movements in a lot of seats in the city and the bush, but particularly the teal, so-called teal independence in inner city electorates. There's been quite a hysterical reaction to those teal independents in some sections of the media saying that, you know, they're going to cause chaos and they're hiding their true colours and all sorts of quite overblown things. I think we have in the past pointed to the productivity of the last hung parliament, which was elected in 2010, to you know, knock down those sorts of claims. And then, of course, there's the UAP and One Nation and where the teals and the voices of our sort of inspirational grassroots movements, I think particularly UAP is harvesting that disaffection in quite a cynical way, in particular to sort of influence the election through their preferences. And One Nation too. I mean, One Nation's so removed from some of the constituencies it's contesting that its candidates don't even come from the same state, including, astonishingly to me, the candidate to whom the Deputy Prime Minister is directing his second preferences doesn't even live in the seat or the state. So the way those parties inspire people, the way they attract voters, and then how that flows through in preferences on on Saturday is going to be really interesting. Hmm. It's It's a really stark contrast, isn't it, between that very conscious grassroots from the bottom up campaign and working out who your candidate's going to be through a process of getting involved in community discussions around the kitchen table initially and a long drawn out process in some cases of of finding a candidate for the independence, the climate focused independence who comes from the local area subscribes to their values, is a presentable, interesting, credible candidate. And then the UAP and One Nation kind of, in some cases, the candidates even being unaware that they are the candidates for yeah. seats or, or, be, or, be, in, or uh, being a candidate in two different seats, you know. Uh, or putting in a form with the electorate left blank. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, there was this coverage in The Australian of how many candidates for the UAP have got criminal records, like which quite is quite serious criminal records in some cases. So, yeah, interesting contrasts. But as we've discussed before, the UAP has a lot of money behind it. They've been plastering the country with advertising for months. It may prove also effective. We shall see. And this might be slightly getting ahead of events, but if Liberal moderates do lose 
a number of those inner city seats to the Teals. It is really interesting to think what that would mean for the Liberal Party and what lessons they would draw from that outcome, whether they would draw the lesson of, okay, we better go back towards the centre and pay attention to the social issues that meant that those voters disavowed us in those seats that we've held for so long, or whether they say, okay, no problems, we're going to go further to the sort of populist right. And that's not, in my view, a reason for voters not to vote for the Teals if that's their choice, because I think the Liberal moderates have had a decade in office to influence the Liberal Party's policies. But the consequences and the choices that the Liberal Party faces then are really quite interesting. Lenore, what was the conclusion of the editorial? That the coalition's kind of siren song of, yes, the pandemic's over, and we can all get back to life is an illusion that we can't afford three more years of Scott Morrison's spin and inaction on really important issues, and that even though Anthony Albanese's agenda isn't as far-reaching as we think is necessary, he offers the best hope that the country can rise to the challenges ahead. So that based on his record and his agenda, Scott Morrison has forfeited the right to another term. So it's the last day of the campaign. Election is tomorrow. Arriva, are you willing to uh, make a prediction? Well, I filled in my sheet for the internal office prediction competition, if you want to call it that, without much confidence because I think it is a really hard election to call and I don't have a great record of calling even the ones that were less hard to call. <laughs> but um, for what it's worth, I have the Coalition winning more seats than Labor but still being, uh, you know, needing to rely on others to form a majority. And I would probably go the other way. I mean, I think it's very hard to tell because the swings are going in different directions in different kinds of seats. If I make a list of the seats that Labor is in with a chance of winning and the seats that the independents are in with a chance of winning, and then I make a list of the seats that the coalition thinks it might win, the first list is a lot longer than the second list. So Mm. that means for the coalition to get there, absolutely everything would have to go wrong for Labor and the Teals and absolutely everything would have to go right for the coalition. That's not impossible, but if I had to guess, and it really is a guess because of the sort of vagaries of where the swings are going, I'd probably guess minority Labor government. Next, defamation and detachment. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Mike, what have you been thinking a lot about this week? So I have been spending far too much time probably, given that I'm meant to be concentrating on the election, reading about the so-called Wagatha Christie libel case in the UK, which, as I'm sure many people will know, is where uh, Rebecca Vardy, the wife of the England footballer Jamie Vardy, is suing Colleen Rooney, the wife of the former England footballer Wayne Rooney, over her claim that Rebecca Vardy was leaking stories about Colleen Rooney to uh, the tabloid press based on her private Instagram account. If you don't know why it's called the Wagatha Christie case, you have to go and Google it, I think. (laughs) But there have been some, I mean, on one level, it's extremely entertaining and a lot of fun. But on other levels, there has been some quite appalling behaviour on display from various parties. There's also a serious point about it, which I think is not really coming out in the case itself, which is mainly focusing on the kind of 
you know, people picking sides and saying one person's terrible and the other person's great, and there is certainly that element to it. But the role of the media in it has been quite unexamined. It's not part of the case, particularly. They're not on trial, but perhaps they should be because it exposes some really terrible practices in the British media of paying for stories, paying for scurrilous personal stories, some of them which in this case turned out to be not true deliberately so yeah the media practices are really really unconscionable Mm. um so yeah there's the fun part of it but i think there's also the serious part of it and it's quite compelling and it is yet another very very stark case of why you should never ever sue anyone for defamation under any circumstances eleanor what's got in your mind this week and not one thing in particular but just in general watching the campaign and realising just what a danger it is for us to overestimate how much people are paying attention uh, and how deeply they're looking at issues, which uh, did come to my mind when I was reading a story in the Sydney Morning Herald which reported on an Indigenous man who approached John Howard when he was uh, with the candidate in Western Sydney and thanked him for being the only white fella who ever got up and apologised to my people. And then when the Herald went back and asked him if he'd met Kevin Rudd, he said, yeah, he probably did, but he still thought John Howard was a legend. I mean, watching the campaign, you do realise the extent to which there is a difference between how deeply we are interested and embedded in these issues and how lots of people getting on with their lives really aren't so much. All right. Well, I look forward to next week's edition when we discuss the fallout. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast now. The episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Keep listening to Full Story all this weekend. There'll be many more episodes in your feed as the weekend rolls on. Jane Lee will have episodes of Campaign Catch-Up for you tonight, as well as on uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, as the results roll in. And Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with you on Monday as we look towards the next chapter in Australian politics, no matter what the result. Thanks so much and we'll see you later today.